0: A lot of times when you're interacting with people, I'm, I'm talking just basic, one-on-one, when you have teams, customers, blah, 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 blah. Just process on, you know, focus on listening to what they're seeing and where they're coming from. It's actually very important to understand where people are coming from. Mm-hmm. It sounds so basic, but it's so very true. It's, you know, so understanding someone's
1: context this is The Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George committee and a note on this episode, my co-host Ashley Stone and I had traveled out to San Francisco for the RSA conference at the end of February, which now seems almost a lifetime ago. Um, there, we had a chance to speak at uh, the very beautiful foreign cinema restaurant in the Mission with uh, Mr. Vikrant Carvier, who is a founder and CEO of Pulse 42. The man is no stranger to success. He has built out high-growth uh, adjacencies at the likes of Cisco, Brocade, Microsoft, Deloitte, and... I think that there is not really so much a secret to that success as there is a disciplined approach to it. We get into uh, his experience in driving innovation and some of the critical skills that are required, including listening for the right data and how to time the development of innovation as it tries to meet the marketplace. Um, Without further ado, here is Vikrant Kavir. This is The Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. We are here in San Francisco for RSA, but today we are recording live from foreign cinema in The Mission, uh, a lovely restaurant. And we have as our guest Vikrant Kavir, Uh, currently CEO and founder of Pulse42 but a uh, veteran of the tech industry here in the Bay Area and we're gonna get into his experience uh, driving innovation growth and uh, buy-in across multiple stakeholders Vikrant thanks for joining us hey thank you guys thanks for having me out here fantastic day out here
2: yes it's a beautiful day we're happy to have you thank you
1: um, so you have spent time working with just about every tech giant there is, uh, <laughs> if, uh, both from the consulting side at Deloitte and then over to Cisco and Brocade and Microsoft, among many others. That's right. Um, and very, very impressive uh, resume and experience in helping scale and, I think in one case, turn around um, a couple of uh, pieces of those organizations. Um, So I'm curious to understand how um, what have you learned about trying to drive innovation within much larger enterprises, which don't have a reputation as being particularly agile? That's a fantastic question. I mean, uh, you know, I think I've made
0: probably every mistake on the planet. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> Still, we like mistakes. I've <laughs> Probably made every mistake on the planet in driving this innovation. So um, lots of, uh, you know, whatever I've learned. Uh, it's a broader question, right? Um, if I have to distill it down to a few things, um, the first thing about innovation is um, a lot of it is essentially timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, timing and sensing what the market is, where the market is, and essentially framing the context. Okay. Uh, So that's the first part. And your capability as an innovator to frame uh, that with your stakeholders, whether they are your peers, whether uh, they are your stakeholders, whether they are your own teams, is very critical. So that's the first part is how do you size up the situation? And as you size up the situation, is the timing right Mm-hmm. To actually drive the innovation number one number two is essentially you know what are the fundamental tectonic drivers that are essentially being created in your marketplace uh, they may be external they may be internal mm-hmm. so having some sense of that so that's the second part uh, the third part is talking to people. Uh, You're still in the people business. Yes. (laughs) Both internally and externally. Externally. Uh, Talking to people conceptually, you know, uh, having discussions, fair amount of very candid discussions with the people who are consuming your products or services. And then the people who are actually on the ground up are building those out. Mm -hmm. Having a sense and having kind of a pulse on what's going on between both sides is very critical. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing where I think I've made a lot of mistakes Okay. (laughs) is uh, when you then go and evangelize this to different stakeholders, Mm -hmm. one of my critical learnings, especially in large environments, and it actually applies even uh, in the world of startups, is how do you pull up relevant data points?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: You may not have actual factual data because what you're trying to evolve towards is a future state. Mm -hmm. And in the future state, there are certain predictions that you can predict, but you don't have full sets of data, right? So how do you essentially look into the current, maybe a little bit of past, but project out in the future and have supporting data sets to support your hypothesis? Uh, that's something, to be honest with you, I have not done very well in my past. Uh, and you learn through the trial and error, mm-hmm. especially right. large, large cross-functional groups. Uh, so that's one learning which is have relevant data sets to back up your concept, back up your idea with different stakeholders.
1: And and were the mistakes that you cite there mistakes in the type of data that you were presenting or just how you contextualized it?
0: Uh, It's a great question, actually a little bit of both. Because what tends to happen is, this has been my, and we are going on different tangents out here, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, conceptually, what's happening out here is, uh, you know, innovators are very driven people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, there's a lot of essentially intuition that you build up about market, about our teams, your organization, right? Your customers. So there's an intuition and there's a lot of essentially signals that you're picking up that you can't actually articulate, Mm -hmm. uh, number one. And number two is a lot of times your frame of reference, your framing of the issue. Issue is going to be very different from how people see the framing.
1: Especially if it's a future state. They're not it's even looking a, exactly. through that frame right yeah. now.
0: So, you know, maybe the higher-order issue out here is, uh, and this applies even in the world of startups, what is your mental frame of reference? And mm-hmm. what is essentially the frame of reference for the people especially cross functional people that are coming into this so it's very important to understand what different frames people have and what your frame is because if your frames are not matching you're just going to be you know colliding on frames so mm-hmm. that's number one number two is you know what are the past or maybe current factual data sets that you have and then number two is how do you present that data set in that framing um, is something that internal which is you know large company innovators as well as external, like entrepreneurs need to learn how to do it. And we are mm-hmm. constantly learning, right? So those are things. And number three is actually using that as a basis to get people on board. Uh, using that as a basis to people uh, get on board. Uh, because innovation, you may have a large team. There were some fairly large, significant teams and PNLs that I managed uh, when I was working in larger corporate environments. But if your team really didn't understand Forget the other stakeholders. If your team really didn't understand what you are trying to accomplish and where you are headed, and you can do as much PowerPointing and all that—that's right. all good right. stuff, right? But beyond <laughs> one point, you know, it has to come from within. And you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is you have to spend a lot of time actually bringing up people up to speed, or understanding where you're going in the journey, and so they become participant in the journey and helper mm-hmm. in the journey rather than essentially pulling you back.
1: Right. But, That's good. Um, in trying to drive these innovations or uh, enabling or securing new technologies, um, have you established a pattern or a checklist? Like, what are the, the milestones that you pass where you begin to see, like, okay, now this is where people are getting on board? Or... Yeah.
0: Um, I think uh, my frameworks may not be very precise, but let me tell you what my instinctive frameworks are. mm mm-hmm. I think the instinctive framework starts off with, it's like this, whether it's essentially uh, in a large environment like Cisco or Microsoft or other places, or whether it is in my current uh, you know, startup uh, state. The first thing is, as an as entrepreneur, whether you are within a large company or a small company, I think it's very critical that you stop the noise in your head. Uh, and you are present in the moment. It's very critical, because what tends to happen is if you are not present in the moment, there is a noise and there is a backdrop, uh, you know, going on in your head, and that does not leave you open to opportunities that you may pick up in very simple conversations. Because some of these things, like mm-hmm. some of the most, I'll give you, a, a, you know, a real example.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, probably 2009, in one of the very large companies that I worked with. Uh, there was a big debate on, there were debates on two points actually at the executive level. One is, is this cloud thing real? Yeah, this is 2009. There was <laughs> like, uh, you know, yes. ferocious debates between my peers. Yeah. Sp- spoiler alert, yeah. It, it is, but <laughs> yes, do <to> continue. <laughs> and the debate was like, hey, data center virtualization is cloud. Mm, okay, so that's number one. And number two, if there is something like cloud, will people buy compute, storage, you know, processing cycles from Mm outside-prem. It's never going to happen. People are never going to give up control. Security, privacy, eh, not going to happen, right? So two order, big orders, right? It's kind of interesting, right? So I remember we were having a dialogue in a a restaurant in Palo Alto, uh, and I was the exec sponsor for one of our uh, customer environments, and we were sitting over there, and somebody called up and the western region uh, territory manager got a phone call and uh, he put it on the speaker phone. And one of his guys from Southern California had called him up. And he said, guess what, my customer, it's a fairly well-known customer in Southern California, they just bought 3,000 servers from Amazon. But point is, it may be as explicit or it may not be explicit, but sometimes these tiny things that are happening around you, mm-hmm. uh, as an innovator, you got to be in a position to pick those up and hone in on this. So that's the first part of being open. Uh, sorry, I got lost. No, that's yeah, great. That's, that's great. Scary.
1: More signal, less noise.
0: About, uh, yeah. Anyways, I, I think I lost my train of thought. So continue with your question.
1: Oh yes. Well, I, I was just thinking like, um, so that's I, I like that from the individual innovators' perspective in trying to quiet the mind and and be receptive to these signals that you may not uh be aware of until they show up yeah but institutionally inside the organizations have you Seen or experienced kind of this checklist. Like, I know if I can win that person. Yeah. Or if I know when they start asking these types of questions, that's sort of like, oh, I've already got them over this threshold, and now it's a, you know, I just, have you established a pattern of behavior?
0: Absolutely. Okay, sorry. I got lost in my train of thought. <laughs> so the first thing is actually look for signals. Uh-huh that's number 1. Number 2 is then what you want to do at least that's what I've done I'm sure there are other guys or gals who do a much better job than I do but generally speaking for the innovator community you know what you tend to do is then you go and validate it very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And you want to do it fast because this is a lot of it is timing and for that to happen the fame of references whether you have a big job or a small job whether you have one report or 1000 report doesn't matter. You got to have an informal network. Mm-hmm. You've got to have an informal network and this is especially true if you're an exec in a large company uh, your real power comes from your informal network how you can f- in the fastest we reach the ground level on sales you know maybe the marketing maybe mm-hmm. the engineering across the organization to quickly size up okay can i have 20 data points to figure out if what i'm sensing out here is happening or not mm-hmm. this happens as an entrepreneur too there are 20 25 environments you want to quickly call and figure out hey do you have this problem do you have this problem do you have this problem So that's the second part. So the second part of this is acting on a signal, an instinctive signal, and seeing if this is true. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not true. But you do that. The third part is once you essentially establish that there is a pattern emerging, then the third part comes. Don't waste cycles. Collect data sets. And here's one of the, you know, uh, one of the learnings also is we are operating in a digitized economy. And in a digitized economy, what's happening out here is we are creating artifacts and monetizing artifacts. So the entire supply and the demand chain is full of digital artifacts. Mm-hmm. But the question is, how fast can you capture this digital artifacts and support your hypothesis? Support your hypothesis from a past to future perspective. So that's, in a nutshell, what is driving uh, me to actually do my own uh, startup right now, Pulse, which helps companies focus on, you know, how do you line up resourcing, to the profitability, but even if when you are in a larger organization, your capability to collect data sets very rapidly is extremely critical. So, yeah.
1: that's should ca- I continue? No, that's that's brilliant. Yes, I like that. I like uh, being able to get to the, you know, dr- drill down to the ground level as fast as possible to validate.
0: Number four. And this is where you know the security and the compliance community can do a fantastic job, right? So one of the things that tends to happen is one, uh, you know, the biggest obstacle to getting access to data. I mean, people have concerns, right? Mm-hmm. There is a control issue, whether you know you're authorized, blah 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 blah. But a lot of times the data set is coming from multiple sources, whether you are within a large organization or whether you're you know operating across organizations. So how do you essentially collect data set without? you know, letting people be concerned about it. So how do you, you know, provide the right access controls? How do you actually have the right permission controls on the data set that you're using? And if you need to anonymize it, you've got to be in a position to anonymize it. So the pace at which you're able to essentially pull the insight is very critical. And sometimes what tends to happen, I'm going into the weeds of implementation, uh, you know, the privacy mm-hmm. uh, uh, of that data set or whether you have rights to actually access the data set becomes an issue. And that becomes one of the biggest hurdles when you are actually driving innovation. Uh, well, this
1: sounds like something very similar to what we've seen is yeah. that you have entire parts of an organization whose remit and mandate is to innovate, go fast, chase growth. Yeah. But they never consult with security or compliance, yeah. which inevitably steps in to apply the brakes because they, they are paid to mitigate risk. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like if those teams were brought in earlier, in a consultative manner. At least they would know what's coming instead of one day they get this request for data that they and right. they don't understand, they don't contextualize, like, why are you asking for this or why do you need this information?
0: Absolutely. I think the reality for most corporate environments, at least what I've seen out here, is as you go through this process, you're looking for tons and tons of analysis. And the uh, data set is there, but a lot of times getting access to data set is a challenge. And, and then, if you really think about it, right, uh, these companies need to make policies around, you know, having security compliance uh, built into how they grow their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, to your point, right? Things will become a lot easy for innovators if day one security is built into their model. Uh, and if you really look into the security team, right, the security team has tons and tons of traditionally, you know, a whole bunch of incidences that you, they are doing a triage with. I mean, it's like, you know, thousands and thousands.
1: Prior yes. priorities. Right.
0: How do they prioritize? Maybe top 5%, maybe top 10%. And by the way, those are very focused on certain regulatory uh, issues uh, tied to that industry. Like if it's a, you know, retail environment, it's PCI, PII, right? If it is a healthcare, but that's a subset. The larger issues are actually, you know, revenue data, salary data, I mean, a whole bunch of other Mm -hmm. issues that may not fit into your traditional compliance model. So how do you have a model in which the definition of security and privacy is broad enough, number one? Number two, that model is built into your business processes that, you know, support other line of business functions or cross functions day one to do what they need to do and security comes, an enabler. I think it's a critical thing. So that's a little bit of
1: side on that. Oh, that sounds sounds Great. Um, Let's turn to to your new project.
2: So we'd actually love to hear about the project that you're currently working on. You mentioned your startup a little bit before, but can you tell us about it? It's pretty incredible.
0: Absolutely. Would love to. So conceptually, what what we are finding out here is... um, uh, you know, every company on the planet these days is becoming a software-driven enterprise. Mm-hmm. So you have essentially mid-cap companies, you know, which are growing at a very fast pace and they're predominantly software companies or SaaS companies or data services companies. And then you, you even you have the larger conglomerates of the world, right, the Teslas, the is they are building up separate business unit focused on digitization and driving online revenues. Conceptually, what's happening in this environment, especially in the last five years, as this trillion-dollar economy, which is the online economy, is growing at 20% year-over-year growth rate. As it is growing at this rapid rate, especially in the five years, the pace at which software features and functionality is actually released to the market has gone up almost like 20x. Wow. And the teams not only are distributed, but nowadays with the concept of cloud and agile,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, everyone is multitasking. Uh, and then the, the software... The rate and the way the software is essentially being delivered, it actually looks like a complex fabric. And the simple problem that most of these environments have is more than half of the software services or data services or applications they are launching to the external marketplace is not hitting the revenue or the usage mark. And what tends to happen is people resourcing followed by infrastructure resourcing never gets freed up. So the GMs of these organizations, the executives of this organization, first want to establish a complete transparency between what is happening on the demand side, which is essentially customers' revenue usage of the software, and connect that to the supply side, which is essentially in a product engineering, operations and support, number one. Number two, they want to essentially take the resourcing away from non-value services, non-revenue driving products, and actually align them to high-value products. Uh, and number three out here is they want to essentially measure what is happening in terms of quality, mm. right? There, there's a lots of signals that customers give, but they never get fed systematically into the supply or the development operations and scaling of the organizations. Um, and then there are other facets to it. So this is the problem statement that this new venture is targeting. And what we realize in order to actually solve this problem we need to build up a different type of backend. Uh, A backend which is very similar to uh, some of the organizations like LinkedIn and Facebook have, which is essentially a mining uh, resourcing graph uh, infrastructure which has also time series analysis built into it. So we're building a different kind of environment to model these type of scenarios,
2: sorry. That's great. So you're you're saying you're trying to understand, take all this information and then figure out what products are working and what's not. What's feeding that bottom line?
0: Bingo. So simple outcomes that these environments uh, want is uh, they may have uh, their revenues might be 100 million dollars to 10 billion dollars. Their team sizes may be 100 to 5,000. What they want to know is how is the portfolio of products and how each individual product, maybe 25 products or 2,500 products, how each one of them is doing on usage. Uh, revenue and for each product what do the resourcing across these three functions what does the cost look like number one number two is what they want to know is okay uh, I want to also track essentially the growth features in this product because for these organizations when they put more R&D the stock price goes up so they want to Mm -hmm. track how much R&D is going and if the maintenance or the technical debt on this product is increasing then they need to flag it number three escape velocity bugs are security issues actually from customers. Mm -hmm. They never get built up into essentially this resourcing model. So having essentially literally a dashboard where all of this comes through and they can operationalize it within the team, that's a product we are building.
2: That's incredible.
1: Yeah. That is, I'm just a, sorry, I took a moment to try and visualize Process. the fabric and the data. <laughs> it coming is actually out it. a
0: graph. If you look at the visuals, it's actually a collection of infinite points. Mm-hmm. Um, and the team that is building has, you know, uh, some of the guys actually came from NASA and uh, Air Force. Uh, so a lot of this is essentially, you know, next generation infrastructure, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of essentially business IP modeling that we are also doing. Mm-hmm on how do you actually model a digital uh, digitized enterprises
1: yeah and I think this comes back to um, this is kind of on the supply side and like the creation side but basically well it's the it's a different side of the same problem which is that the technology is adopted at such a quick rate yes that there isn't a lot of time to reflect on either in your case, production or on where we work on the investment in that technology. It's just like acquiring channels, acquiring technology. That's right. And uh, focused on the vision of growth or whatever, but n- not taking the time to then self analyze. Like, is this worth the investment? Did we just sort of bolt a shiny object onto the, <laughs> onto That's the right. enterprise? That's right. Um, yeah. So actually collecting data
0: sets from multiple channels, because there's so much interaction. And then in that, I I think what you guys do is not only capture the interaction, but also understand where the exposure points are, right? Where the risk points are. How do you mitigate the risk around it, which is what you guys do, right? Mm. Uh, Yeah. And uh, from our standpoint, one part of that is that. And how do you essentially operate on it? How do you operationalize it with the team that is actually building that out?
1: Yeah, I, I want to return to this notion of, of timing mm-hmm. being critical to innovation and kind of creating demand at those critical moments. And so you spoke a little bit about uh, being able to recognize the signals and then being able to validate it very quickly so that you can move fast. Um, in terms of, you, you spoke about the, these sort of ancillary signals, but is there a way that you have of... Um, recognizing that demand very clearly like a, a litmus test that you use or dare i say a rosetta stone for <laughs> de- deciphering the the demand i think uh, i i
0: think um i would say the investor community in silicon valley is fairly sophisticated uh yes when, i think we, i think that's fair to say <laughs> that, that, that's uh, they're fairly sophisticated in uh, you know truly assessing whether entrepreneurs uh have a good handle on what the demand is and where the demand could be. I mean, conceptually, Mm -hmm. the way I see this. Um, So part of it is essentially truly understanding which persona truly cares about the pain point that you're solving. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone talks about that. It's kind of hard to do. Uh, and a lot Yeah, because if it was easy to do, we yeah, would be billionaires. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it requires you to be brutally honest and not drink your Kool-Aid. So that's one part of it. Uh, number two is it's also critical to understand what additional personas are influencing that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one part of it. The second part of it is essentially if you are generating value, if you are generating value, There are two parts to the value creation one is you know someone who actually uses what you're building and someone who actually consumes it and what i'm trying to say is as an innovator you may be a big company or you may be a startup you're building products but the consumption is happening but for the consumption to happen there are people who will actually use it on a day-to-day basis and then there are people who will essentially consume that and make essentially a larger decision. So as an as mm-hmm. innovator, you have to figure out, are you solving a $100,000 problem or are you solving a multi million dollar problem? And sometimes the answer is both. So you have to essentially have a, a, a simple strategy where you're going to make it easy for the people who are going to consume it, easy to use, and then the people who are going to write the checks, essentially, easier to essentially justify the checks, which brings to the question that you're asking is, If there is value, then the people who are writing the checks, right, not the people who are adopting, Mm -hmm. but the people, you got to be in a position to say, hey, you know, how much value and how much investment are you going to make in this new capability? And there's nothing wrong. I mean, that's the hardest part sometimes. Internal innovators or external innovators have a hard time doing it. That's not to be confused, essentially, with driving adoption. Everyone understands you got to drive viral adoption in this day and age. But there has to be a value and it has to be, you know, commensurate with what you're delivering.
1: Right. Yeah, I like right. that idea of a multi-layered uh, game that you have to play because the end user is saving hundreds of thousands of dollars or yeah. gaining it, but the, the person who signs the checks has to be able to see how quickly can right. I ingest the data and make a decision that moves a, a ship rather than just like a boat, you know, just like like a really big change or a, a functional capability that they've never had before. That's right, exactly.
2: That's great. So how do you actually support a champion to take advantage of this new opportunity? You've you've got the demand. They know it's there. How do you actually get them to to take advantage of it?
0: Um, I think it's a great question. Um, I'll just reflect on my own experience. What has actually worked is taking the concept and literally building a prototype on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happens is this happens. This is especially true if you are trying to go into a white space or if you're innovating on a space where the existing paradigms don't match up. Um, uh, What I found is there's only, you know, so much uh, dialogues, whiteboarding and PowerPointing you can do. (laughs) Truth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the other part that I think innovators can do a great job of is not trying to over design the system, but actually focus on the inputs and outputs, because ultimately it's inputs and outputs Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Um, So first step is essentially see if you can short circuit it and build up some sort of like whatever it is that you're building up a prototype. Uh, a fast prototype to actually get reactions on it. Mm-hmm. Number two is essentially understand who actually will use that prototype in different environments and what the essentially the next set of features for that prototype would be. Number three is have value based conversations early on in this. Do not be do not hesitate. It's okay to actually ask value-based conversation. How much are you gonna play? It? You know, how much are you gonna use? Why would you want this? Actually, it's very critical for entrepreneurs and innovators within large companies to ask the tough question upfront. Hey, you want this, why would you want it? There are 15 other options in the market. Mm -hmm. There are 15 other ways in which you could potentially solve it. Help me understand why you think this is the right thing. And if the person on the other side who wants this is not able to come up with a clean answer, then better go and talk to 15 other people and see if 15 other people have a better answer. Uh, because you don't want to go for something which is like kind of nice to have
1: right, right. I think that that sounds um, very much like the validation it's stage. a validation right um, So it's a validation number
0: one mm-hmm. I, if that's what you're looking for the yeah. second part out here is then you got to essentially figure out you know if you build up this category what are the market trends because that's the part of the timing I mean you can build up the best gadget the best gizmo the best software but if you don't have the market, what are you going to do you're going to sit over there yeah. right it doesn't quiet. matter yeah it doesn't matter are you with the wind or are you against the wind so that's a part of the timing and then you need data set to support it and then you need to evangelize it so
1: great um i want to uh also return to this notion of um being present so just as a, as a personal habit what are some things that you do to quiet that noise to, you know, is it a daily practice or is it a habit that you've developed of how do you tune out the stuff that makes you more open to hearing the, the critical signals? Sure. Um,
0: you know, so like I said, I've made lots of mistakes right. in my career, right? But but importantly, we've learned from them. We right? learned from them. <laughs> right? Otherwise we won't be out here, right? right. Uh, so I'll go from bottoms up, right? Basic thing, right? Basic one-on-one. A lot of times when you're interacting with people, I'm I'm talking just basic, one-on-one, when you have teams, customers, blah, 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 blah. Just process on, you know, focus on listening to what they're seeing and where they're coming from. It's actually very important to understand where people are coming from. Mm-hmm. It sounds so basic, but it's so very true. It's, you know, so understanding someone's context uh, is very critical, number one. Number two uh, is to get to that state of mind. What I do actually is, you know, I find activity in which I can focus 200% on, right? So sometimes physical activity like workouts, outdoors, uh, meditation, I think these things kind of help a mm-hmm. lot in calming the mind. So that's number one. Number two is everyone is ambitious. Everyone is ambitious and everyone has big goals. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. So the the philosophy that I think works a lot when I talk to my peer group uh, with entrepreneurs is you can absolutely be ambitious, you can have absolutely good goals, fantastic goals, and all that. And everyone has the first or the second lucky runs, but to do it on a sustained basis, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in, the, you're in the marathon or the business of innovation marathon, What tends to happen is you need to essentially not worry about what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen six months from now, whether you're tracking exactly what you thought you would be doing or not. So that's that's a lot of the noise. Mm -hmm. My point out here where I'm going with this is um, what I find my peer group and myself do the best is your capacity to hyper focus. Number one. And your capacity to hyper-deliver in that present moment actually creates a huge difference on whether or not you will actually make it past this phase into the next phase. That's right. Okay. And obviously, the conventional wisdom about, you know, goals, blah, 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 that all falls.
1: <laughs> right. But those two things are it, super critical. Yeah, and it's possible to be held hostage to your goals six months from now to the detriment of what you need to get done today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. I'm intrigued by the listening aspect. Again, the easy things are the hardest to do. Well, the hardest, um, I was, uh, heard an interesting take on <clears throat> listening and it was like, don't, uh, when you enter a conversation a conversation is an opportunity to explore another person's mind. So don't spend the conversation waiting mm-hmm for your chance to say what you want to say mm-hmm. or or looking for the counter-argument that you can, t- you know, so I, I take that be present um, both, you know, critical for life but evidently critical also for business. It is, if I may, right, on this one, I know
0: you might be running. Uh, in a large environment, it's uh, very hard mm-hmm. because especially in a large environment, uh, a lot of times there are conflicting points of view and oftentimes the perception is that whoever essentially has bigger voice uh, gets to say more. And it kind of creates, I've seen it with myself in my own career path, it kind of creates a paradigm where you want to voice first and listen. What I find is in the short run, it might give you benefits. In Mm -hmm. the long run, I don't think it helps. Right. Yeah, because ultimately you will need all those other people to... You need other (laughs) people. Your peer group, you need your tribe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, great. Well, we're we're wrapping up, but the last question here is a, is something that uh, a lot of people face both on in the innovation front, among our clients, among just about anyone adopting a new technology. There's a lot of decision making. We've talked about getting stakeholder buy-in. W- what about day two, right? It's like, all right, we've got everybody on board. We've got the technology. We've implemented it. Now what? That's sort of the question that I'm interested to hear your take on in terms of how do you then develop the processes to, to use it in a reliable manner etc it's actually a great question right because day two is when the real
0: life starts right so <laughs> uh, and um, you know usually what I've seen is uh, not many of us actually think about day two so uh, that's number one and um, Day 2 almost requires you to truly understand, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but Day 2 truly requires you as an innovator to understand the whole life cycle in which you're fitting your new product or service, Mm -hmm. number one. And number two, how the consumption of that product across different stakeholder organizations is going to happen. Um, and then as you think through it, it, it's a logical process sometimes. You have to follow, you have to have some institutional domain, you have to talk to people, but you have to understand what the flow is. Uh, many of us don't do it. I have also not done it rigorously, but then you're forced to do it because mm-hmm. if you don't do it, you got into issues. And there are some pretty obvious things that show up uh, in that one, in day two. One of the pretty obvious stuff is, uh, essentially, among other things that I've seen, is basic usability of products. Uh, another pretty obvious stuff, and that becomes a big blocker, is uh, someone has an issue on privacy. Uh, how do you? I mean, this is especially mm-hmm. true of data-driven yeah. businesses. Where, where, who gave you? What? Ac- what? What am I looking for? And then you know, and day two, the, you know, the, you know, the fire drill and the firestorms start happening, <laughs> and then you know, you kind of find you find yourself back to you know, day zero minus two.
1: Yes, that's right. <laughs>
0: So, uh, you know, I think if I have to say it, you know, basic things is like usability, security, compliance, uh, you know, triaging through essentially what your product is exposing and how you're going to condense it because people don't have time and bandwidth mm-hmm. uh, are some of the critical things that tend to be overlooked uh, from day two perspective. Great.
2: That's great insight. Really helpful to remind people it's about privacy and security alongside innovation.
0: Yes,
1: absolutely. That goes hand in hand. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for the time. Uh, we have loved it out here in SF. It's also brilliant to, to meet people who are um, the ones that we will read about in the magazines, <laughs> uh, the entrepreneurs, the ones driving the change, and very grateful for you uh, sharing your experiences all, as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both of you okay thanks Thanks so much thank you and that does it for another episode of the zero hour brought to you by safeguard cyber as always we are grateful to abby bruce for sound design and production matthias sefaletti for our theme music and to our guests for lending their precious time and their expertise and insights um I just want to say during this challenging time that we are grateful also to the first responders and the men and women in the hospitals on the front line. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong, y'all. We'll be back. We will return with another episode soon, but until then, this is The Zero Hour,
2: signing off.